Hi, I'm Andy English. This is Headley Boys, a small town's big part in the Great War. I acknowledge that the town of Headley is in the traditional territory of the Samilkameen people. Episode 8 War Weary Headley The Canadian Corps suffered over 10,000 casualties during the assault on Vimy Ridge. All of the divisions had suffered, especially the 4th, and to keep them up to the strength of four brigades per division, it was going to take a lot of new recruits. The universities had proved fertile ground for attracting recruits, and a battalion, the 196th, had been formed and had sailed to France in 1916. By 1917, some of the new batch of recruits initially went to the 196th University of British Columbia Battalion. Three Headley volunteers were amongst these men during six weeks of May and June. First to enlist was 18-year-old Richard Clare, son of Arthur Clare, the stamp mill foreman. Richard left Headley and enlisted in Vancouver before he telegraphed his parents to let them know what he had done. His parents must have supported him, though, because they went down to Vancouver to see him before his unit sailed. Another young Headley man was Leo Brown, who was a student at the UBC when he enlisted a week after Richard Clare. And in June, the second oldest Corrigan boy, Robert or Bob, enlisted. He was 32 and had been rejected on medical grounds twice before. Now the army decided he was fit enough. And so these three men would sail first to England, then on to France, where they would find themselves serving with Bob's older brother John Corrigan in the famed 29th Vancouver Battalion. Only one other Headley man would join a frontline battalion in 1917, and that was John Grieve, who enlisted in September. He too would eventually end up in the 29th. Judson Craig, another man in his 40s, had enlisted, along with a number of Karameas men, into a forestry battalion. The Gazette commented on the fact that it was the older men stepping up. Where were the younger ones? This was illustrated by the return from France of some of these older men who had enlisted previously. 58-year-old Nick Pickard had returned, as had an old rancher named Henry Atherton, who was also in his 50s. They had served in supply and pioneer units in France, but even in the so-called safer areas, they came under fire and were exposed to gas. Amazingly, they had stuck it out for several months before bowing to the inevitable and revealing their true ages. In all cases, the army doctors were sympathetic to these men. They had wanted to do their bit, but had found out in the most brutal way that war is for the young men. And young men were precisely what Canada was looking to recruit. In March, the Conscription Act was finally passed, and at first required all single males between the ages of 20 to 24 to register. Their deadline to register was April 1st. Several young men from the Samilkameen registered, and among them was the only man in the CEF who had Headley, BC as his birthplace, in 1894, before Headley existed. His name was John Lorenzetto, although he was known as Jack. He had been born in possibly the Ashnola area between Headley and Karameas, the first of 14 children that Peter and Edith Lorenzetto would have. Both of their fathers had been among the early European settlers to the area. Andrew Lorenzetto was an Italian wine merchant who had got the gold fever in the 1850s and had had some success and brought farmland near Hope. There he had taken a local First Nations wife known as Marie. Peter was one of their five children, and when his sister got married and moved to the Karameas area, he followed. Here he married a young girl named Edith Barrington Price. 
Her father had acquired land in Karameas in the 1870s and had built a gristmill, which still stands to this day. While there, he had had a relationship with a Samilkameen woman named Catherine, and Edith was their daughter. Peter and Edith's relationship was tempestuous. Peter was a known drunkard who had set the family home on fire at least twice. Not surprisingly, Jack did not have a good relationship with his father, and at quite a young age had to step in to help his mother. Jack was a superb horseman from a young age and had won several prestigious horse races, and his ambition was to have his own ranch. He was on his way to fulfilling his dream when the war came to him. He had acquired his own string of horses, but now, supposedly because Peter paid income tax, Jack felt that he should register for national service, and so he did, and he now waited for the call. While Jack waited to hear back from the army, the Canadian army overseas was recovering from Vimy Ridge. They stayed around the Vimy and Lens area for most of the year. A major attack on Hill 70 near Lens in August saw the 29th Vancouver Battalion heavily involved, with Jack Corrigan still in their ranks. And in September, the 54th conducted a successful attack on Lens, due in no small part to Alec Jack. The 54th War Diary notes his skilful organisation of the attack and his utter disregard of danger. In October, they moved north again, back to Ypres, and the awful mess that had been a village called Passchendaele. Headley, though, would not hear about any of this news from a local newspaper, for on August the 16th, the Headley Gazette published its last ever issue. There had been no warning, although there were increasing pages of advertisements for health pills and products, and very little local news. The front page ran an editorial bemoaning the rising price of ink and paper, and that it cost $1,300 a year to run, and that there is not $1,300 in the business. The editor blames the fact that so many British-born men have left the mining camps and that the mining companies are now hiring what he calls aliens and neutrals. He accuses foremen and superintendents of taking payoffs from these men for hiring them. The men only buy from company shops and they save rather than spend their money to the detriment of all the local businesses. He thanks Headley and the Samilkameen and hopes for the town's success once the home builders return. There is then a piece offering office furniture and equipment for sale if you come on down to the Gazette offices. And like that, Headley lost its weekly newspaper, and it has never been one since. The Headley Trading Company, Tommy Rotherham's Candy Shop, the barber shop James Clark's Watch Repair, amongst others, were still in business, but times were now tough. The Robertsons, without Bobby's army pay that he had sent home to his mother, now found themselves moving up to the Nickel Plate Mine to live with their daughter Phoebe and her husband. And in November, Jack Lorenzetto passed his army medical at Vernon. He was one step nearer to joining the army. It was going to be a long, hard winter for many in now war-weary Headley. The Third Battle of Ypres had started in the end of July with the intention of pushing the Germans off the high ground. It was dogged with terrible weather that turned the battlefield into a quagmire that swallowed men, horses and guns whole. Over this ground for the next two months, tens of thousands of men died. And still, the village of Passchendaele, an objective at the start of the battle, had not been captured. There was no village left now. Just a few bricks in the shell craters were all that remained. Into this hell the Canadian Corps arrived and were given the task of taking Passchendaele. General Curry, the Canadian commander, said it would cost 16,000 casualties for no strategic purpose. And he was right. It took until November 10th before the village and surrounding high ground was taken and held. 
The 54th were lucky in that they did not take part in any of the frontal assaults. Instead, they were used to build duckball paths through the mud and clearing up all the debris of war. This was dangerous work and they still took turns holding the front line where they suffered a number of casualties. Though four days before the first Canadian assault in Passchendaele, the 54th had a very sombre event to deal with. On October the 22nd, 16 men, four from each company, were assembled at 0540 in the courtyard of Ypres Prison, there to perform probably the most distasteful duty any soldier is ordered. They were the firing squad of Private Thomas Lionel Moles of the 54th Battalion. Thomas Moles was 28 and originally from England. He had been an early volunteer at Vernon, enlisting in July 1915. But he was a man definitely not suited to army life. While at Vernon he went AWOL, and then again in England. He was also frequently drunk, and so spent a lot of time in confinement or under field punishment. Every time he returned to the Bad Italian he got into more trouble. Finally, in August 1917, he refused an order to join his company in the reserve trench and fled to a nearby village, where he stole to survive for three weeks. He was eventually arrested and charged with desertion and theft of a comrade's property. He was court-martialed on the 4th of October and found guilty of both counts and sentenced to suffer death by being shot. The death sentence was handed out over 3,000 times during the war to soldiers in the British Army, but the vast majority were reduced to terms of imprisonment or hard labour. In all, 346 were executed in World War I, and of those, 40 were for crimes that carried a death penalty in civilian life. The remaining 306 were executed for what was referred to as military crimes, such as cowardice and desertion, and of these, 23 were in the Canadian Expeditionary Force. The sentence could be commuted by any officer as it went right the way up to the Commander-in-Chief of the British Army, Field Marshal Douglas Haig. The sentence was confirmed by Field Marshal Haig on the 17th of October, and five days later at 5.50am it was duly carried out. What effect carrying out this order had on the 54th, we have no idea. But the use of the prisoner's own battalion to carry out the sentence was meant to be seen as a deterrent to anyone else thinking of deserting. But it also because of the army's belief that above all, they had let their comrades down. Undoubtedly, men like Thomas Mole should never have been enlisted or kept in the army. But in World War I, the army could not let desertion and disobeying orders be seen as a safe way out. And so rather than dismiss men with undoubted temperamental issues, military justice was implemented, with the tragic end for over 300 men. Whether Alec Jack witnessed the execution is unknown. He was, though, by this time, captain of Company A, the lead company, and on 29th of October he was hundreds of miles away in Inverness, Scotland, where he married Mary Cowan Thompson. He was not the only Headley man to get married while overseas. Jack Howe, while in the Forestry Battalion, had met his future wife, as had William Lidicote while recovering in hospital. All of their wives would move to Canada as war brides. Alec Jack's honeymoon didn't last long, and he was soon back with the 54th. By now they had finally left the Ypres salient and were heading back to the area around Lons. Even though the Third Battle of Ypres was officially over on November the 10th, fighting was always going on in the area. It was never quiet. And on November the 25th, Jack McClintock, formerly of Headley, was killed in action. He was serving with the Canadian Railway troops. Maybe because by now his friend James Greer, the former Gazette editor, had sold up and moved. News of his death never reached Headley, and he was never included on the Cenotaph until 2017. Christmas and the New Year saw the 54th in the front lines for both days, although it was quiet with no enemy shelling. 
The first three months of 1918 were spent with the by now regular routines of training, reinforcing, labouring, courses on bombing and spells in the front line. For all the troops, life in France now took on its own rhythm and pattern. Time under fire, then time at rest, fatigue parties by day, wiring at night and so on. All the multitude of different jobs and tasks that had to be done to keep an army fighting in the field. But all this hard work would have seemed to have been in vain when on March the 21st, the Germans launched a massive offensive against the British to the south of the Canadians. Following the revolutions that had racked Russia the year before and that country's subsequent armistice with the Germans, a large number of troops were now freed up from the Eastern Front. Ludendorff, the German army commander, had decided to go all out and to try to split the British and French armies and capture the channel ports. Hundreds of thousands of American troops were starting to cross the Atlantic and Ludendorff knew this was Germany's last chance to gain anything from this war. The suddenness of the attack took the British completely by surprise and by the day's end troops were pulling back all along the line. The Germans were using new tactics involving stormtroopers, small groups of heavily armed men who would bypass fortifications to get directly into the reserve trenches and cause chaos behind the lines. These tactics worked, and soon the British were withdrawing back over the ground that they had taken at such great cost. Back over the Somme battlefields, and Albert was now captured, and it wasn't until they retreated as far as Amiens did the British manage to stop the German advance. And the 54th Battalion played an important part in this. C Company, the old Headley Company, with now just Windy Bill Former left in it, was sent on a night raid on the 2nd of April to collect information and, if possible, a prisoner. The raid was a complete success, and the two prisoners and intelligence brought back went straight up to the highest command, where the information was a great help in repositioning the troops. The 54th received congratulations from headquarters on the splendid job they had done. The 54th's war diary noted that this is one of the most important things the battalion achieved during its time at the front. The next day, the 29th Battalion were in action. Bob Corrigan had been with the battalion now nearly five months, and had experienced a winter in the trenches. But in heavy fighting now going on around Arras, he was wounded by shellfire. He was hit in his left knee and was soon on his way to hospital in England. A blighty wound. Five days later, it was now 19-year-old Richard Clare who was to get injured so bad he would go back to England. He was wounded in his right thigh and left arm, again by shellfire. During the war, the vast majority of casualties were caused by exploding shells and the chunks of metal flung in all directions. And so it was with the Headley men. Richard Clare did recover from his wounds, although his fingers retained some stiffness. He returned to the battalion at the end of August. Bob Corrigan, too, was soon out of hospital and back with the 29th by mid-May, where he rejoined his brother John and Leo Brown, the former student, now a Lance Corporal. At this point, the German offensive had been halted and the Allied armies were gathering and re-equipping, ready for when they would have to advance back again over the same ground that had already cost so much. As always, the greatest need was for men to refill the ranks. And so, in February 1918, Jack Lorenzetto went to Vancouver and enlisted. He sent his mother Edith a postcard just before he embarked for England. Postcard addressed to Mrs Lorenzetto, Headley, BC. Vancouver, BC, Feb 18th, 1918. Dear Mother, I am very sorry I could not stay here longer, so I could at least have time to write a letter. We are leaving the camp here at 915 it is perhaps better for all of us to leave this way. I know it is easier for me. Be brave and take it easy. Don't worry. I will write as soon as I get to London. There are five other boys from down that country going also, so I will not be alone. Well, goodbye. Lots of love and best wishes. 
your son, Jack. Jack arrived in England in March, and he and the other new recruits were rapidly introduced to army life. They were assigned to the 29th Battalion, but there would be more months of training in the weapons they would use, the tactics and knowledge needed to try to keep alive in the trenches. On Mother's Day, Jack wrote to his mother, telling her of all the things he had done in England. Mother's Day, May 13th, 1918, Canadian YMCA. Dear Mother, Just a line or two to let you know I've just had my leave for six days. I was two days in London seeing the sights. The other four days I was down with Billy R visiting his people. I am sending you some pictures we had taken down there. It was a pretty place just half an hour out of London on a fast train. I am on draft now and have got my overseas equipment. I made good shooting on the range last week and will likely be a sniper. I made 53 points out of 60 which is very good and hard to beat. Billy R and I are the best shots in our outfit. Billy made 59 out of 60, one point short of possible. I saw the big smoke city of London, was in two days, and saw the zoological gardens, the museum and the waxworks. They were wonderful, and rode all over London in the tubes, the underground railways. London is 20 miles square, so she is some burr. I saw some good shows. I will be in France by the 28th of May. I'm going into the 29th Battalion with most of our boys from Penticton around there. They are all going to the 29th to be together. There is lots of men over there, so we won't go up to the front line for a month maybe, unless the Germans start some or move by the time you get this. It takes three weeks for you to get this, so I'll be in France when you get this, I think. I have had no letters from home since I got here. I had one letter from Catherine, one from Betsy, Marcel, Mina too. Write me often because your letters are a great comfort to me. This soldiering is a hard life, but I'll be back home soon maybe if I'm not pushing up daisies in France. Well, good night, for this time with love to all the family and yourself, especially today because it is Mother's Day, a day when everybody pays their respects to their mothers and is kept sacred here in this country. I am sending some pictures we had taken while we were on leave. Goodbye, God bless you all, with love from your loving son, J.L. Lorenzetto. For someone born and raised in the quiet Similkameen, this must have seemed like one great adventure. And getting to France was the ultimate goal for most of these men. That was where the action was. Jack, though, would have to wait another month in England before sailing to France. There were still headly men serving in England at this time. Thomas Calvert was still on the headquarters staff, chomping at the bit, wanting to see action before the war was over. He was to get his chance. In July 1918, Sam Steele officially retired. And the very next day, Thomas Calvert was a part of a draft of 80 men into the 1st Battalion of the Canadian Engineers. He had got into the war at last. Thomas Knowles had won the military medal at Vimy and had received a commission soon after. In June, he found himself transferred from the 54th Battalion into the newly formed Royal Air Force. The RAF had come into being on April 1st and was the amalgamation of the Army's Royal Flying Corps and the Navy's Royal Naval Air Service. Thomas Knowles was posted to a naval airbase in Hampshire, England. There he learnt to fly cauldron flying boats and he soon found himself performing anti-submarine patrols over the English Channel. The young Scottish engineer had come a long way from that August day when he had enlisted three years previously. And soon his younger brother would also be enlisting, as would William Tucker's brother Norman. They were some of the eight Headley men and boys who enlisted in the army through being conscripted that year. Only Jack Lorenzetta, though, would see combat. He finally joined the 29th Battalion in the beginning of August, 
and would have had barely any time to adjust to his new surroundings before he was involved in the most important battle of the war. Today, the Battle of Amiens is barely known. The great months-long slaughters at the Somme, Ypres and Verdun are the battles everyone thinks of when they think of World War I. But Amiens is the battle that achieved all the hopes of the previous failed offensives. It was meticulously planned. The guns had zeroed in on the German artillery and not most of them out. The troops advanced under a creeping barrage that kept the Germans in their dugouts. They were also supported by over 500 tanks. Low-flying aircraft attacked the enemy supply lines and support trenches by bombing and strafing. The Canadians were recognised by the Germans as one of the elite units in the British Army and were now being used as shock troops leading the advance and so any movement with Canadian units was done at night and with utmost secrecy. The last units of the Canadian Corps only got into position a few hours before the attack. On the 8th of August, the battle began. The surprise achieved was total, and by the end of the day, the Allies had advanced nearly seven miles, an undreamt of distance, when previous advances had been measured in yards gained. The 8th of August was referred to as the Black Day of the German Army by its commander Ludendorff. He knew at that point the war was lost for Germany, and he was right. The offensive that followed was known as the last 100 days, but it was to be a bloody last 100 days for the Canadian Corps. Over 45,000 casualties, some 20% of the total for the entire war, and Headley was to find out the war had a bitter end to it. Headley Boys was written, produced and presented by Andy English. Maple Leaf Forever was performed by Cindy Rieger in the Grace Church, Headley. 